0: This podcast details true crime cases. It contains adult themes and may contain descriptions of violence. This episode contains explicit language. It is not intended for children. Listener discretion is advised. Thank you for joining me for today's episode of Once Upon a Crime. We're in the series Swan Songs, where I share true crime cases that inspired songs. On this episode, Kurt Cobain pens a song... That will be included on Nirvana's most popular album after reading about a brutal rape and abduction of a young girl. When the public learns the past history of the perpetrator, they will react with shock and anger that he was free to walk the streets and commit another heinous crime. This is chapter three of Swan Songs The Case of Gerald Friend. On the night of Friday June 5, 1987, a lineup of punk rock bands was being featured at the Community World Theater in Tacoma, Washington. For a mere four bucks, attendees could watch five local bands thrash the night away. On this balmy June evening, the lineup included Fright Wig, Danger Mouse, Child Support, Diddly Squat, and Thrash Forward. One 14-year-old girl was made aware of the show at the World Theater that Friday night by crudely drawn flyers created by each band and then handed out and plastered around the city. One flyer titled the concert The Slam and Jam, another A Night of Thrashin. That last one was obviously made by either the band Thrash Forward or one of its fans, as it was listed as the headliner complete with logo. With a flyer and a few bucks in hand, the girl made her way to the concert, which began at 8 p.m. The girl who would remain unidentified because of her age and subsequent events, finally left the venue at the end of the concert in the early morning hours of June 6th. At that time and place, there was a large group of teens who had made their way to the Pacific Northwest. Many of them were homeless, and they gathered in the downtown areas of Seattle, Tacoma, and Olympia. The music scene in the area was thriving, and some had come to try and make it in the music business. Or because they were fans following a band, or just because it held the promise of a more exciting life compared to whatever small town they might have come from. The girl was one of the latter. She was a runaway, and just too young and too naive to be out on her own in a strange city. There were those, of course, who would take advantage of such a situation, and unfortunately for her, she would be approached by a predator of the worst variety. Whether she was hitchhiking or just walking along when the man drove up and offered her a ride is unknown. But she accepted a ride from the 50-year-old stranger, perhaps thinking he was just a kindly older man. If so, she was very mistaken. Soon after she was in his car, Gerald Arthur Friend pulled out a knife. He then drove her to his mobile home on the outskirts of town. He blindfolded the terrified girl and over the next 24 hours, he beat, raped, and tortured her. For a time, she was suspended by her wrists from a pulley affixed to the ceiling and raped with several objects. He tortured her further by running a propane torch close to her skin and striking her with a whip. After a full day of abuse, friend put the gagged and handcuffed girl in his car. He began to drive out of town, but stopped at a gas station. There, the girl managed to escape from the car and ran, more than likely saving her own life. She flagged down a sheriff's vehicle and friend fled. However, she was able to direct deputies to her abductor's home. He wasn't there when they arrived, and a be-on-the-lookout was broadcast with his description. Meanwhile, his mobile home was searched and evidence was found to back up the girl's claims. They found the girl's clothing and jewelry, as well as a Barbie doll handcuffed with chains, shades of BTK, a large staff of pornographic magazines, and a gym bag full of women's underwear. Later that day, Friend's car was pulled over for a traffic violation in Yakima. He was recognized as the wanted man and arrested. Gerald Arthur Friend's arrest and the details of his crime made the newspapers. At that time, a young musician in the area read about the abduction and brutal attack on the young girl, the details of which came to haunt him. Kurt Cobain had been trying to get his band going for a couple of years, and it had gone through several incarnations by this time. While he was still living in Aberdeen, Washington, Cobain traveled to Olympia and Tacoma to see punk bands play in clubs, He played some of these small venues with his own band. Cobain's band first went by the names Fecal Matter and then Skid Row. Thank goodness he didn't keep either of those band names right. One of the reasons that the story in the newspaper stayed with Cobain was because the Community World Theater in Tacoma, where the young girl had attended a concert the night she was abducted, was well known to him. In fact, the weekend after the girl's abduction, his band, Skid Row, had been scheduled to perform there. The gig was canceled at the last minute, but they had played the club before. You can still find the handwritten flyers with the lineup for that night. One version lists Skid Row, but another one simply states the headliner band, Killdozer, their opening act, Beat Happening, and the third band is just listed as, and one more and that would be Nirvana. Of course, Kurt Cobain would be an unknown act at this time, and the man Nirvana had not been fully formed, but the story of the runaway girl who was raped and tortured by Gerald Friend inspired him to write a song. The song, titled Polly, was written in 1988 or 1989, but would not be released until Nirvana's second album, Nevermind, in 1991. Holly is described as one of Nirvana's darkest songs. Cobain wrote the lyrics from the rapist's perspective. He sings the words that describe violent and profane events in a quiet, calm, and utterly creepy way. Holly wants a cracker, it begins. I think I should get off her first. I think she wants some water to put out the blowtorch. The chorus repeats. Let me clip your dirty wings. Let me take a ride. Don't cut yourself, I want some help, to please myself. Not easy to listen to if you know what he's actually describing. By the time Polly was released as a cut on Nevermind in 1991, their first album, Bleach, had become a bestseller, and Kurt Cobain and Nirvana were on their way to becoming superstars. Cobain was asked about the song and explained that he took his inspiration for it from the account of a brutal rape of a young girl. This, as you can imagine, created some controversy. Critics of the song took offense that the band was taking a tragic and violent event and turning it into entertainment. Cobain's personality was such that the more criticism he got for being inappropriate, the more he leaned into it. His response to these critics was to say, quote, I like to write about other people and events. My own life is boring, unquote. That did not help calm the backlash, as you can imagine. Others criticized the song, saying that he got the details of the crime wrong. Of course, like most artists, Cobain was not trying to create a factual account of the crime, but simply took elements of a news story he'd heard and used it as inspiration to write his song. Biographers of Cobain theorized that he wrote the song from the perspective of the rapist because he was trying to bring awareness about violence that women experience at the hands of men. Women, of course, knew this fact all too well, but it's believed that Cobain wanted to bring more of this awareness to his fans, a large percentage of whom were men. Cobain had long been a champion for women's causes. Among other things, Nirvana held a benefit concert for Bosnian rape victims. Once asked if he considered himself a feminist, Cobain answered, I am definitely a feminist. I'm fucking disgusted by the way women are still treated. It's 1993, and some people still think we're in the 1950s. We need to make more progress. There needs to be more female musicians, more female artists, more female writers. Everything is dominated by fucking males, and I'm sick of it. One of his most famous quotes regarding violence against women is this, Rape is one of the most terrible crimes on earth, and it happens every few minutes. The problem with groups who deal with rape is that they try to educate women about how to defend themselves. What really needs to be done is teaching men not to rape. Go to the source and start there. In his biography of Nirvana, Come As You Are, journalist Michael Azerrad noted that rape seemed to be a consistent theme in Cobain's songs and interviews, as if Cobain was, quote, apologizing for his entire gender, unquote. However, Cobain explained, I don't feel bad about being a man at all. There are all kinds of men that are on the side of women and support them and help influence other men. In fact, a man using himself as an example toward other men can probably make more impact than a woman can. Because Polly is such a simple unadorned piece of music, It brings the listener in close to the subject matter. It was just an acoustic guitar. Cobain explained that he wrote it on a cheap $30 guitar that was in bad condition. And Cobain's soft voice, which makes the dark lyrics about abuse and degradation even more jarring. Rather than Cobain glorifying violence against women, the song Polly brings you in close to experience the horror of what the victim is experiencing in that moment when she hears these terrifying words. Writing from the perpetrator's perspective evokes horror in the listener and puts you in the shoes of the victim. Kurt Cobain never elaborated on why he wrote the song, but other statements he made and his activism gives you a clue as to his motivation. In the 2001 biography, Heavier Than Heaven, Charles Cross compared the song to Truman Capote's In Cold Blood, in that it was written from the criminal's point of view. Of course, those of us who follow true crime understand why Cobain might have been so fascinated with the idea of attempting to understand the mind of a violent predator. I believe that he may have also had another motivation for the song because I'm convinced that Cobain had been long obsessed with stories about crime and violence. One violent story that Cobain became obsessed with was that of Pennsylvania State Senator R. Bud Dwyer. Dwyer was convicted of corruption charges while in office in 1987. He maintained his innocence, but was found guilty. The day before he was to be sentenced, on June 22, 1987, he called a press conference. There, in front of reporters and live television cameras, Dwyer read a statement and then pulled out a gun. Before anyone had time to react, he placed the gun to his head and pulled the trigger, killing himself live on the air. The tape of the gruesome act was later circulated, and Kurt Cobain got hold of a copy. He became obsessed with the story and watched the tape of Dwyer's suicide repeatedly. For the full details of this story and how it affected Cobain, listen to The Day the Music Died series from the first season of Once Upon a Crime. I did a detailed episode about the life and death of Kurt Cobain in episode number 10. So it's not surprising that he would write songs that focused on the darker aspects of crime, including rape. He may have sought out more details of the girl's attacker, and if so, he would have discovered that Gerald Arthur Friend was a serial predator with a long history of violence against very young girls. After deputies arrested Gerald Arthur Friend for the kidnapping and rape of a 14-year-old in Tacoma, they discovered that this was not his first arrest for a sex crime. Twenty-seven years earlier, Friend had been convicted of another violent rape. Gerald Arthur Friend was from Lakewood, a town southwest of Tacoma, Washington. In July of 1960, 13-year-old Robert Compton and his 12-year-old sister Candace had traveled from their home in Sumney to Bonnie Lake where they spent the day swimming. On the way back home, the kids were walking along the road when 22-year-old Gerald Friend stopped his vehicle and offered to give them a ride. They accepted and got into the car. A short while later, Friend pulled out a gun and forced Robert out of the car. He then drove off with Candace. After about an hour, he parked the car in a secluded area of Mount Rainier National Park and forced the girl to remove her clothes friend raped and beat the girl, and for some odd reason, perhaps so she wouldn't later be recognized, cut off most of her hair. The brave little girl took her first opportunity to run off. Candace was a strong swimmer, and she escaped the man chasing her by jumping into the Carbon River and swimming away. She made it to a main road where a passing motorist found the battered girl and called police. Candace was able to describe her kidnapper's car in detail. It was found nearby and identified as belonging to Gerald Arthur Friend, who lived on his family farm in Ording, Washington. A warrant was issued for his arrest and for first-degree kidnapping and rape. Police traveled to Ording to arrest Friend, but he wasn't there when they arrived. They explained to his father, Arthur, that there was a warrant out for his son. Three days later, his father found Gerald on his property and started calling out to him. Gerald walked off and his father continued after him, telling him he needed to turn himself into police who'd come with a warrant. Gerald told his father to leave him alone, and when he would not leave, pulled out a gun and started waving it into the air to warn him away. Arthur Friend persisted after him, grabbing his arm. Gerald pulled away and stumbled, discharging the weapon and shooting himself in the leg. Arthur hurried to get help for his injured son, but when he returned... Gerald had vanished. Arthur returned home and called the sheriff. But before the deputies could arrive, Gerald hobbled out of the woods using a tree branch as a makeshift cane. He was bleeding badly. His parents drove him to the hospital in Tacoma, and once he was admitted, Arthur called the sheriff's office to report his son's whereabouts. Deputies arrived and kept Gerald friend under guard until he was deemed well enough to be transported to jail. Gerald Friend was found guilty of first-degree kidnapping and rape and sentenced to 75 years at Walla Walla Prison. He was transferred to a minimum security unit, and while there, he escaped twice, the second time in 1978. Even so, the Board of Prison Terms and Parole decided to release Friend after serving just 20 years of his sentence. He was set free in 1980. Now, seven years later, he was being charged with another kidnapping and rape. Gerald Friend's trial for the Tacoma Abduction and Rape wrapped up on August 18, 1987. He'd refused to speak to investigators, but his victim took the stand and bravely confronted her attacker. The jury began deliberating at 9 a.m., and by 3, they had reached a verdict. He was found guilty... But showed no emotion as the verdict was read. Pierce County prosecutor Tom Stratton recommended an exceptionally long sentence for Friend. A sentence for the charges he was convicted of would normally warrant an eight to 10 year sentence. A sentence of 60 to 70 years was sought by the state due to the quote extreme cruelty of the crime, the age of the victim, and that he was convicted of multiple incidents of rape. But the judge handed down an even longer sentence. Friend was ordered to complete his sentence for the 1960 rape and kidnapping, which would be 55 years, and then was given an additional 75 years for the current conviction. He began serving his sentence at the age of 50, so it is extremely unlikely that Gerald Friend will ever be a free man again. In September of 1988, six months after Friend's sentence was handed down, His victims sued the state of Washington and the Department of Corrections, contending that they acted in wanton disregard for public safety for paroling her attacker in 1980 after he'd served less than half of his sentence. The lawsuit was settled for an unspecified amount. it seems likely that Gerald Friend's two victims might not have escaped with their lives had they not been so brave and found a way to escape. Investigators begin to wonder if there might have been more victims of his that hadn't been so lucky. Since the early 1980s, dozens of women had gone missing in Washington state. Some of their bodies were found dumped in the woods near the Green River, leading to the press calling the yet unidentified murderer the Green River Killer. Because of the nature of his crimes and his proximity to the area where the women were abducted and or found murdered, Gerald Friend was named as a suspect in the Green River Killings. In particular, he was investigated in the 1987 murders of two young girls, Jennifer Bastian, age 13, and Michella Welch, age 12. Both girls were riding their bikes when they went missing. Michelle was found later the same day she disappeared. She had been sexually assaulted And her throat had been cut. Jennifer's body wasn't discovered until three weeks later. She'd been dumped in the woods after being sexually assaulted and strangled. Detectives interrogated Gerald Friend about these murders, but he denied being involved. The person found responsible for the Green River murders was, of course, Gary Leon Ridgway. Ridgway was a suspect in the killings as far back as 1983, but was not identified as the murderer until a DNA match was done in 2001. He was arrested on November 30th of that year and would ultimately be charged with the murders of 41 women. He would confess to 71 murders and be suspected of many more. In 2018, Michelle Welch's murder was finally solved when a DNA match identified 66-year-old Gary Charles Hartman as her killer. In 2019, After her family waited for answers for over 30 years, Jennifer Bastian's killer was also caught through the use of DNA. 61-year-old Robert Dwayne Washburn was charged with the crime after his DNA was found to be a match by cold case investigators. He confessed to Jennifer's murder and pled guilty. He is serving a 27-year prison sentence. Hartman pled not guilty to Michelle's murder and is awaiting trial but her family finally has some answers. And now that Michelle's killer is behind bars, they are grateful to the cold case investigators who never gave up. Still, it's possible, I think, that there may be more victims of Gerald Friend. Do we believe he managed to keep his predatory behavior in check between 1980 when he was released from prison and 1987 when he abducted the 14-year-old in Tacoma? Here's one strange news item I came across while researching this episode that makes me wonder. The article is from the Spokesman Review out of Spokane, Washington, and is dated October 2, 1987. It's titled, Rapist Investigated After Girl's Skull Found. Quote, A girl's skull found in a Goodwill donation box in June is being examined as part of an investigation of twice-convicted rapist Gerald A. Friend, authorities say. The skull was found in a retail parking lot southwest of Tacoma while police were searching for clues in the June 6th kidnapping, rape, and torture of a 14-year-old Tacoma girl. Police found the skull while searching a parking lot where Friend apparently abandoned his car shortly after the rape. It looks like a skull that's been boiled, the Pierce County medical examiner said. The skull is that of a victim whose identity is not yet known, but investigators have determined it is that of a female, age 13 to 19. Though Friend is not being called a suspect in the case, Detective Art Anderson said an investigation of Friend in this case is continuing. I have found no other information about the identity or the status of this case. So, aspects of this case remain unknown but there are a couple of details I can give you a bit more information about. After Nevermind became a hit album for Nirvana, there was a report, or at least a rumor, that a woman was raped by two men who sang the song Polly while committing the crime. While I've not been able to verify that this is true, Kurt Cobain was so disgusted by the idea of it that he added the following statement in the liner notes of Nirvana's 1992 album, Incesticide. Quote, Last year, a girl was raped by two wastes of sperm and eggs while they sang the lyrics to our song, Polly. I have a hard time carrying on, knowing there are plankton like that in our audience. Sorry to be so anally PC, but that's the way I feel, unquote. Kurt Cobain certainly had a way with words. Finally, some people mistakenly believe that the song Polly was in reference to Polly Hannah Class, the twelve year old who was kidnapped from her bedroom by knife point in Petaluma, California. Polly Class was found murdered and her killer was identified as Richard Allen Davis. He was sentenced to death. I covered this case in season one, episode twenty one, titled True Crime Game Changers Polly Class. Polly is not about Polly Class. The song was written in nineteen eighty eight or nineteen eighty nine years before the Polyclass kidnapping occurred, which was in October of 1993. Because the song was released several years later on the album Nevermind, some people believe that it must be about her. But Nevermind still predates Polly murder by two years. It was released in 1991. That will do it for this episode of Once Upon a Crime. I hope you're all staying healthy, washing your hands, and not hoarding toilet paper. CrimeCon at this time is still a go for May 1st through 3rd in Orlando, Florida. I'll be there along with a lot of your favorite true crime heads on Podcast Row. Secure your tickets at CrimeCon.com and if you use my offer code OnceUpon2020, you'll get 10% off your registration. Did you know that Once Upon a Crime is a Stitcher Premium show? You can get every episode ad-free if you're a Stitcher Premium member. To sign up, go to Stitcher.com And when you sign up for a premium subscription, use my offer code, Once Upon a Crime, for your first month free. Once Upon a Crime is written, produced, and edited by me, Esther Ludlow. Our administrative research and production assistant is Lorena Garcia. Our copy editor is Crystal Dernan. And original music is by Aaron Michael Goldberg. Thanks for listening and telling a friend. Until next time, be good to one another.